Chapter 6 of Theodore Savage, A Story of the Past or the Future. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Mazzacci. Theodore Savage, A Story of the Past or the Future by Cicely Hamilton. Chapter 6. That night ended Theodore's life as a clerk in the civil service. The confusion consequent on the breakdown of transport had left of the distribution system but a paralyzed mockery, a name without functions attached to it, and with morning Theodore and his able-bodied fellows were impressed into a special constabulary, hastily organized as a weapon against vagrancy grown desperate and riotous. They were armletted, put through a hurried course of instruction, furnished with revolvers or rifles, and told to shoot plunderers at sight. No system of improvised rationing could satisfy even the elementary needs of the hundreds of thousands who swept hither and thither as panic seized or the invader drove them. Hence military authority, in self-preservation, turned perforce on the growing menace of fugitive and destitute humanity. Order, so long as the semblance of it lasted, strove to protect and maintain the supplies of the fighting forces, which entailed, inevitably, the leaving to the fate of their own devices of the famished useless, the horde of devouring mouths. Interruption of transport meant entire dependence on local foodstuffs, and, as stocks grew lower and plundering increased, provisions were seized by the military. Theodore, in the first hours of his new duty, helped to load an armed lorry with the contents of a grocer's shop and fight it through the streets of York. There was an ugly rush as the driver started his engine. Men who had been foodless for days had watched in sullen craving while the shop was emptied of its treasure of sacks and tins, and when the engine buzzed, a child wailed miserably. A woman shrieked, Don't let them! Don't let them! And the whole pack snarled and surged forward. Wolfish white faces showed at the tailboard, and before the car drew clear, her escort had used their revolvers. Theodore, not yet hardened to shooting, seized the nearest missile, a tin of meat, and hurled it into one of the faces. When they drew away, three or four of the pack were tearing at each other for the treasure contained in the tin. He noticed, as the days went by, how quickly he slipped from the outlook and habits of civilized man and adopted those of the primitive, even of the animal. It was not only that he was suspicious of every man, careful in approach, on the alert and ready for violence, he learned, like the animal, to be indifferent to the suffering that did not concern him. Violence, when it did not affect him directly, was a noise in the distance, no more. And as swiftly as he became inured to bloodshed, he grew hardened to the sight of misery. At first he had sickened when he ate his rations at the thought of a million-fold suffering that starved while he filled his stomach. Later, as order's representative, he herded and hustled a mass starvation without scruple, driving it away when it grouped itself threateningly, shooting when it promised to give trouble to authority, and looking upon death itself indifferently. It amazed him, looking back, to realize the swiftness with which ordered society had crumbled. Laws, systems, habits of body and mind, they had gone, leaving nothing but animal fear and the animal need to be fed. 
within little more than a week of the night when young Hewlett had called him to watch the red flashes and the glare in the sky, there remained of the fabric of order built up through the centuries very little but a military force that was fighting on two sides, against inward disorder and alien attack, and struggling to maintain itself alive. Automatically, inevitably, under pressure of starvation, blind vagrancy and terror, that which had once been a people, an administrative whole, was relapsing into a tribal separatism, the last barrier against nomadic anarchy. As famished destitution overran the country, localities not yet destitute tried systematically and desperately to shut out the vagrant and defended what was left to them by force. Countrymen beat off the human plague that devoured their substance and trampled the crops underfoot. Barriers were erected that no stranger might pass, and bloody little skirmishes were frequent at the outskirts of villages. As bread grew scarcer and more precious, the penalties on those who stole it were increasingly savage. Tribal justice, lynch law, took the place of petty sessions and assize, and plunderers, even suspected plunderers, were strung up to trees and their bodies left dangling as a warning. And a day or two later, it might be, the poison fire swept through the fields and devoured the homes of those who had executed tribal justice, or a horde of destitution too strong to be denied drove them out, and, homeless in their turn, they swelled the tide of plunderers and vagrants. Man, with bewildering rapidity, was slipping through the stages whereby, through the striving of long generations, he had raised himself from primitive barbarism and the law that he shares with the brute. Very steadily, the process of displacement continued. On most nights, in one direction or another, there were sudden outbursts of light, the glare of explosion or burning buildings, or the greenish-blue reflection of the poison fire. The silent engine gave no warning of its coming, and the first announcement of danger was the bursting of gas shell and high explosive, or the sudden vivid pallor of the poison fire as it ran before the wind and swept along dry fields and hedgerows. Where it swept, it left not only long tracks of burned crop and black skeleton trees, but often enough the charred bodies of the homeless who its rush had outpaced and overtaken. Sudden and unreasoning panic was frequent, wild rushes from imaginary threats, and there were many towns which, when their turn came, were shells and empty buildings only, dead towns whence the inhabitants had already fled in a body. York had been standing all but silent for days when an enemy swooped down to destroy it, and Theodore, guarding military stores in a camp on the Ripon Road, looked his last on the towers of the Minster, magnificent against a sea of flame. Death in humanity had ceased to move him greatly, but he turned away his head from the death of high human achievement. For the first few days of disaster, there was a certain amount of news, or what passed for news from the outside world. In districts yet untouched and not wholly panic-stricken, local journals struggled out and communiques, true or false, were published by the military authorities. But with the rapid growth of the life nomadic, the herding and driving to and fro, with the consequent absence of centers for the dissemination of news or information, the outside world withdrew to a distance and veiled itself in silence unbroken. With the disappearance of the newspaper, there was left only rumor, 
and rumor was always current, sometimes hopeful, sometimes dreadful, always wild. Today, peace was coming, a treaty all but signed, and tomorrow, London was in ruins. No one knew for certain what was happening out of eyeshot, or could more than guess how far devastation extended. This alone was a certainty, that in every direction that a man might turn, he met those who were flying from destruction, threatened or actual, and that night after night and day after day, humanity crouched before the science itself had perfected. Sometimes there were visible encounters in the air, contending squadrons that chased, maneuvered, and gave battle. But the invaders, driven off, returned again, and the process of displacement continued. And with every hour of its continuance, the death roll grew longer, uncounted, and men who had struggled to retain a hold on their humanity and the life civilized gave up the struggle became predatory beasts and fought with each other for the means to keep life in their bodies. In after years, Theodore tried vainly to remember how long he was quartered in the camp on the Ripon Road, whether it was weeks or a matter of days only. Then or later, he lost all sense of time, retaining only a memory of happenings, of events that followed each other and connecting them roughly with the seasons, frosty mornings, wet and wind or summer heat. There were the nights when York flamed and the days when thick smoke hung over it, and the morning when aeroplanes fought overhead and two crashed within a mile of the camp. There was the night of pitched battle with the rabble of the starving, grown desperate, which rushed the guard suddenly out of the darkness and beat and hacked at the doors of the sheds which contained the hoarded treasure of food. Theodore, with every other man in the camp, was turned out hastily to do battle with the horde of invaders, to shoot into the mass of them and drive them back to their starvation. In the end, the rush was stemmed and the camp cleared of the mob, but there was a hideous five minutes of shots and knife thrusts and hand-to-hand -hand struggling before the final stampede. Even after the stampede, the menace was not at an end. When the sun rose, it showed to the watchers in the camp a sullen rabble that lingered not a field's breadth distant, a couple of hundred wolfish men and women who could not tear themselves away from the neighborhood of food, who glared covetously and took hopeless counsel together till the order to charge them was given, and they broke and fled, spitting back hatred. After that, the night guard was doubled, and the commanding officer applied in haste for reinforcements. Barbed wire entanglements were stretched round the camp, and orders were given to disperse any crowd that assembled and lingered in the neighborhood. Behind their entanglements and line of sentries, the little garrison lived as on an island, in the flood of anarchy and ruin, a remnant of order, defending itself against chaos. And for all the discipline with which they faced anarchy, and the ruthlessness with which they beat back chaos, they knew, so often as they dared to think, that the time might be at hand, must be at hand if no deliverance came when they, every man of them, would be swept from their island to the common fate and become as the creatures, scarce human, who crawled to them for food and were refused. When darkness fell and flames showed red on the horizon, they would wonder how long before their own turn came and be thankful for the lightning in the east and as each convoy of lorries drove up to remove supplies from their fast-dwindling stores, 
they would scan the faces of men who were ignorant and helpless as themselves to see if they were bearers of good news. And the news was always their own news repeated, of ruin and burning, of famine and the threat of the famished. No message save stereotype military orders from that outside world whence alone they could hope for salvation. There remained with Theodore to the end of his days the dreadful memory of the women. At the beginning, just at the beginning of disaster, authority had connived at a certain amount of charitable diversion of military stores for the benefit of women and children. But as supplies dwindled and destroying hordes of vagrants multiplied, the tacit permission was withdrawn. The soldier, the instrument of order, unfed was an instrument of order no longer. Discipline was discipline for so long only as it obtained the necessities of life, and troops whose rations failed them in the end ceased to be troops and swelled the flood of vagrant and destitute anarchy. The useless mouth was the weapon of the enemy, and authority hardened its heart perforce against the crying of the useless mouth. Once a score or so of women, with a tall, frantic girl as their leader, stood for hours at the edge of the wire entanglement and called on the soldiers to shoot if they would not feed them to shoot. Then, receiving only silence as answer, the tall girl cried out that, by God, the soldiers should be forced to shoot and led her companions, some cumbered with children, to tear and hurl themselves across the stretch of barbed and twisted wire. As they scrambled over, bleeding, crying, and their clothes in rags, they were seized by the wrists and hustled to the gate of the camp, some limp and effortless, others kicking and writhing to get free. When the gate was closed and barred on them, they beat on it. They lay about wretchedly, and at last shambled wretchedly away. More dreadful even than the women who dragged with them children they could not feed were those who sought to bribe the possessors of food with the remnant of their feminine attractions, who eyed themselves anxiously in streams, pulled their sodden clothes into a semblance of jauntiness, and made piteous attempts at flirtation. Money being worthless, since it could buy neither safety nor food, the price for those who traded their bodies was paid in a hunk of bread or meat. Those women suffered most who had no man of their own to forage and fend for them, and were no longer young enough for other men to look on with pleasure. They, as humanity fell to sheer wolfishness and the right of the strongest, were beaten back and thrust aside when it came to the sharing out of spoil. He remembered very clearly a day when news that was authentic reached them from the outside world. An aeroplane came down with engine trouble in a field on the edge of the camp, and the haggard-faced pilot, beset with breathless questions, laughed roughly when they asked him of London, how lately he had been there, what was happening. Oh yes, I was over it a day or two ago. You're no worse off than they are down south. London's been on the run for days. He turned back to his engine and whistled tunelessly through the silence that had fallen on his hearers. Theodore said it over slowly to himself. London's been on the run for days. If so, if so, then what, in God's name, of Phyllida? Hitherto he had fought back his dread for Phyllida, denying to himself, as he denied to others, the rumor that disaster was widespread and general and insisting that she, at least, was safe. If there was one thing intolerable, one thing that could not be, it was Phyllida vagrant, Phyllida starving. 
his dainty lady bedraggled and groveling for her bread, like the haggard women who had beaten with their hands on the gate. It must stop, he choked suddenly. It must stop. It can't go on. The pilot broke off from his whistling to stare at the distorted face. No, he said grimly, it can't go on. What's more, it's stopping, by degrees, stopping itself. You mayn't have noticed it yet, but we do. Taking them all around, they're leaving off, not coming as thick as they did, and, his mouth twisted ironically, we're leaving off, and for the same reason. The same reason, someone echoed him? Because we can't go on. You don't expect us to carry on long in this, do you? He shrugged and jerked his head toward a smoke cloud on the western skyline. That's what ran us, gone up in smoke, food and factories and transport and Lord knows what beside. The things that ran us and kept us going. We're living on our own fat now, what there is of it, and so are the people on the other side. We can just keep going as long as it lasts, but it's getting precious short now, and when we've finished it, when there's no fat left, he laughed unpleasantly and stared at the rolling smoke cloud. Someone else asked him about the rumor ever current of negotiation, whether there was truth in it, whether he had heard anything. Much what you've heard, he said, and shrugged his shoulders. There's talk. There always is. Plenty of it. But I don't suppose I know any more than you do. It stands to reason that someone must be trying to put an end to it. But who's trying to patch it up with who? And what is there left to patch? Lord knows. They say the real trouble is that when governments have gone, there's no one to negotiate with. No responsible authority. Sometimes no authority at all. Nothing to get hold of. You can't make terms with rabble. You can't even find out what it wants. And it's rabble now, here, there, and everywhere. When there's nothing else left, how do you get hold of it? Treat with it. Who makes terms? Who signs? Who orders? Meanwhile, we go on till we're told to stop, those of us that are left. And I suppose they're doing much the same, keeping on because they don't know how to stop. Theodore asked what he meant when he spoke of no government. You can't mean it literally. You can't mean... Why not, said the pilot. Is there any here? And jerked his head, this time towards the road. Its long white ribbon was spotted with groups and single figures of vagrants, scarecrow vagrants, crawling onward. They knew not whither. See that, he said. See that? Does anyone govern it? Make rules for it? Defend it? Keep it alive? And that's everywhere. Someone whispered back, everywhere, under his breath. The rest stared in silence at the spotted white ribbon of road. You can't mean, said Theodore again. The airman shrugged his shoulders and laughed roughly. I believe, he said, there are still some wretched people who call themselves a government, try to be a government, at least there were the other day. Sometimes I wonder how they try, what they say to each other, poor devils, how they look when the heads of what used to be departments bring them in the day's report. Can't you imagine their silly, ghastly faces? Even if they're still in existence, what in God's name can they do except let us go on killing each other in the hope that something may turn up? If they give orders, sign papers, make laws, does anyone listen, pay any attention? Does it make any difference to that? Again, he jerked his head towards the road. And in the word, as in the gesture, was loathing, fear, and contempt. And in other parts of what used to be the civilized world, 
where this sort of hell has been going on longer, what do you suppose is happening? No one answered. He laughed again roughly, as if he were contemptuous of their hopes, and a man beside Theodore, a corporal, swung round on him, white-faced and snarling. Damn you! I've got a girl! I've got a girl! He choked, moved away, and stood rigid, staring at the road. Theodore heard himself asking, If there isn't any government, what is there? What's left of the army, said the other. That's all that hangs together, bits of it, here and there, getting smaller, losing touch with the other bits, hanging on to its rations, what's left of them, and we hold together just as long as we can fight back the rabble, not an hour, not a minute longer. When we've gnawed our way through the last of the rations, what then? You may do what you like, but I'm keeping a shot for myself. Whether we're through with it or whether we're not, just stopping fighting won't clear up this mess, and I'll die what I am, not rabble. Whether after days or whether after weeks, there came a time when they ceased to have dealings with the world beyond their wire defenses, when the store sheds in the camp were all but emptied of their hoard of foodstuffs and such military authority as might still exist took no further interest in the doings of a useless garrison. Orders and communications, once frequent, grew fewer, and finally, as military authority crumbled, they were left to isolation, to their own defense and devices. Since no man any longer had need of them, they were cut off from intercourse with those other remnants of the life disciplined, whence lorries had once arrived in search of rations, separated from such other bands of their fellows as still held together. They were no longer part of an army, were nothing but a band of armed men. Though their own daily rations were cut down to the barest necessities of life, there was little grumbling, since even the dullest knew the reason. As the airmen had told them, they were living on their own fat for so long as their own fat lasted. For all their isolation, their fears and daily perils kept them disciplined. They held together, obeyed orders, and kept watch, not because they still felt themselves part of a nation or a military force, but because there remained in their common keeping the means to support bare life. It was not loyalty or patriotism, but the sense of their common danger, their common need of defense against the famished world outside their camp, that kept them comrades, obedient to a measure of discipline, and made them still a community. There had been altercation of the fiercest before they were left to themselves, when lorries drove up for food which was refused them on the ground that the camp had not sufficient for its own needs. Disputes at the refusal were furious and violent. Men, driven out forcibly, went off shouting threats that they would come back and take what was denied them, would bring their machine guns and take it. Those who yet had the wherewithal to keep life in their bodies knew the necessity that prompted the threat and lived thenceforth in a state of siege against men who had once been their comrades. With the giving out of military supplies and the consequent breaking of the bonds of discipline, bands of soldiers scouring the countryside were an added terror to their fellow vagrants, and, as long as their ammunition lasted, fared better than starvation unarmed. If central authority existed, it gave no sign. While military force that had once been united, an army, dissolved into its primitive elements, tribes of armed men held together by their fear of a common enemy. 
in the wreck of civilization, of its systems, institutions, and polity, there endured longest that form of order which had first evolved from the chaos of barbarism, the disciplined strength of the soldier, a people retracing its progress from chaos, retraced it step by step. End of chapter six, recording by Jennifer Mazzacci.